0: welcome to Word Online. Hello and welcome to series 8 and episode 11 which is entitled Overcoming the Powers of Evil. We're continuing in Luke's Gospel where we've been studying uh, in recent episodes. We're in Luke chapter 11 and we're going to be studying verses 14 to 36 Let's just do a quick reminder of where we are in the story. It's always so important to uh, remember the context and realise there's a a big story going on in the Gospels. And as you've been following the episodes, uh, no doubt you'll see how important that is in my thinking in presenting uh, these episodes to you. We want to tell the whole story and see how it fits together. So going back to series seven, which many of you hopefully will have uh, uh, watched or heard... Uh, That was the crucial turning point uh, in Jesus' ministry, where he begins to move from Galilee, his base in the north of Israel, and decides to head south towards Jerusalem. And the central event there was the Transfiguration, where Jesus went up a mountain with Peter, James and John, and they had a remarkable experience of his glory, his divine glory, talking to Moses and Elijah briefly. uh, And then that event Uh, launched uh, Jesus's direction going south into Judea Samaria and then to Jerusalem now in the following part uh, beyond that uh, we moved into John's gospel and we saw uh, a a series of events taking place in a a short uh, period where Jesus visited Jerusalem and that was all described by John's gospel and then now We are back in Luke's Gospel. So our main story writers for this part of the story are in fact John and Luke. As I've mentioned on a number of occasions, John uh, gives a lot of focus to events in Jerusalem. And Jesus made that remarkable quick visit um, that was described in John 7 uh, and then other visits, John 9 and 10. Uh, which we described earlier on. But this was in a context of tension and difficulty. He didn't stay very long um, because uh, he needed to do his work in Judea and Samaria. And we all know uh, from everything that's been said so far that he's going to return to Jerusalem for one final time at the end of the story. And Luke focuses on that journey to make the final visit to Jerusalem. So our immediate context in Luke Um, uh, has not only Jesus' decision but also that remarkable event that we saw a few episodes ago where he sent out 72 disciples including the 12 um, and they went out in pairs all over Samaria and Judea to spread the message of his coming kingdom and so this is obviously a systematic attempt to try and uh, saturate the nation with awareness that God's kingdom is coming through the person of Jesus. These were exciting times and challenging times. Then uh, we looked at um, the parable of the Good Samaritan, uh, the wonderful story of Jesus visiting the sisters Mary and Martha um, uh, in their home and we're going to pick up that story because that family becomes Uh, the focus of a remarkable miracle right at the end of Jesus' public ministry when their brother Lazarus is raised from the dead. as recorded in John's Gospel. We're coming to that later on. And then in the last episode, uh, we find at the beginning of chapter 11 uh, that Jesus is travelling on this long journey to Jerusalem, uh, rather indirect journey as he travels around all different parts of Samaria and Judea. And as he's travelling... Uh, He's praying in a certain place and his disciples start talking to him about prayer. They want to learn how to pray as he does. So that's what we discussed last time. And so Luke continues the narrative. He moves on from the topic of prayer. There's a miracle that's at the beginning of this story. Um, And then this miracle triggers a conversation and lots of statements uh, uh, from Jesus about overcoming the powers of Evil. We know that the powers of evil uh, in the theology of the New Testament and in Jesus' own teaching were real personal evil forces operating in and around the world, operating against the purposes of God. That's the basic theological framework of the whole of the New Testament, in fact, but certainly of Jesus' teaching. And we'll see this stated very, very clearly as we read this text. We're going to read in a moment... Uh, Luke 11, verses 14 to 28, the first part um, of this passage. And as we read it, you will notice that there are distinct similarities between this passage and a passage we studied much earlier on. And this was one that appears in uh, Matthew 12 and with a shorter version in Mark 3. Uh, I'll comment on that when I've read. The passage, but let's read it first of all. Uh, Luke 11, verses 14 to 28. Jesus was driving out a demon that was mute. When the demon left, the man who had been mute spoke, and the crowd was amazed. But some of them said, By Beelzebul, the prince of demons, he's driving out demons. Others tested him by asking for a sign from heaven. Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them Any kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, and a house divided against itself will fall. If Satan is divided against himself, how can his kingdom stand? I say this because you claim that I drive out demons by Beelzebul. Now, if I drive out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your followers drive them out? So then, they will be your judges. But, if I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own house, his possessions are safe. But when someone stronger attacks and overpowers him, he takes away the armour in which the man trusted and divides up his plunder. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not uh, gather with me scatters. When an impure spirit comes out of a person, it goes through arid places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house swept clean and put in order. Then it goes and takes seven other spirits more wicked than itself and they go in and live there. And the final condition of that person is worse than the first. As Jesus was saying these things, a woman in the crowd called out, blessed is the mother who gave you birth and nursed you. He replied, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and obey it. So if you're familiar with the New Testament, and if you followed through the teaching of the life of Jesus, you will know or remember that there's a very, very similar passage in Matthew 12 with a very compressed version in Mark 3. This uh, provokes us to ask a few questions. Uh, Is this the same incident and the same teaching? Well, my answer would be no, it isn't. There are a number of indicating factors. First of all, there is a different context The earlier passage, based around Matthew 12, took place in Galilee. It represented a a confrontation with the Pharisees and the religious establishment. This incident takes place undoubtedly in Judea or possibly Samaria on the road to Jerusalem, as I described earlier on. So the geographical context and the chronological context is different. The timing is very different. Matthew and Mark uh, recount an incident in the second tour of Galilee. Luke describes an incident on the way to Jerusalem in the latter part of Jesus' ministry. And another interesting comparison is that the hostile questioners in Matthew's account, Matthew 12 verses 22 to 24 being the key text, The hostile questioners are the Pharisees, particularly aimed at undermining Jesus and contradicting him. Whereas here, Luke describes the questioners as being members of the crowd. If you look at verse 14 and verse 15, you'll see that very clearly stated. These are members of the crowd. So the the context as described by the different writers are different. And I think we should respect that and understand this passage in a slightly different way. Basically, what happens in the life of Jesus, as in the life of any great teacher, um, is that similar teachings appear in different contexts. This is obvious uh, in terms of religious teaching Uh, any religious teachers in any religion will teach similar things in different contexts. This is true of academic teaching in a school uh, or in a university you'll find similar things taught slightly differently in different contexts. So there's nothing surprising about that. And we find in the Gospels that some things are repeated in different contexts. And that's essentially what's happening here. And the fact that this question about... The source of Jesus' power over demons looks very similar to the question that the Pharisees or the statement of the Pharisees in Luke, uh, in in Matthew 12, verses 22 to 24. The fact that it's similar almost certainly means that that idea had seeped into the consciousness of the crowd from what the Pharisees were persistently saying. They were saying he's a false messiah, he's uh, empowered by demonic forces. Uh, He's deluded, and that message was getting into the crowd. So someone reiterates that view. Here's a couple of examples of Jesus' teaching which appear in different contexts. One is the parable of the lost sheep, which appears in Matthew 18 in one context, and in Luke 15 in another context with two slightly different applications. Another good example is from our previous passage in Luke chapter 11, where Jesus teaches the disciples, as you'll remember if you heard that one, um, the Lord's Prayer. It looks as though from Luke, as though he's teaching it then for the first time, but if we go to Matthew's Gospel and we go to the Sermon on the Mount and we go to chapter 6, we find the Lord's Prayer is there in a slightly different form. So the Lord's Prayer is taught twice to the disciples. Now, is there any surprise about this? Well, I don't think there is. I think it's just the way things happen, and that's the explanation of the similarity between this passage and the one in Matthew 12, and a smaller version in Mark 3. So looking at this passage a little bit more closely, um, we see uh, that the accusation is that Jesus is operating by somebody called Beelzebul. Sometimes in the New Testament, Beelzebub. Now Beelzebub was a name for Satan, or the devil, or the chief of demons. Uh, A name in their common usage. And the the thing that triggered this statement was um, the power of the miracle, where a man who was mute, he was unable to speak, quite suddenly through Jesus's prayer and driving out of an evil spirit, was able to speak clearly, fluently, and no doubt continually. Very dramatic miracle. And somebody in the crowd or some people in the crowd who are influenced by the Pharisees and their teaching uh, reiterated an earlier statement and accusation. But Jesus' answer is basically saying it's rather absurd to suggest that he is... ...operating by demonic power in order to deal with a demonic presence in an individual person. And his logic is very strong here. Why would Satan want to destroy his own kingdom? If he destroys it, if it's divided, it's going to fall. It's an illogical thing to imagine that such a situation would occur. So the absurdity of the statement is uh is identified by jesus response in verses 17 through to verse 22 but jesus is fairly forceful in responding to this particular accusation because this accusation that he's operating by demonic power is in a sense right at the center of the hostile approach of the religious leaders the Sanhedrin the Jewish ruling council who uh, oversaw the uh, uh, the Jewish religion from Jerusalem and their associates the Pharisees and the other religious sects their accusation is now well formed well articulated has been publicly stated as in Matthew 12 and in other places that we've seen and is well known amongst the crowds And certainly influences the crowds very deeply when Jesus is in Jerusalem, as we see from John's gospel in the sections that I've just mentioned earlier on, because there the hostility to Jesus, the suspicion of him is very great, because the influence of the religious leaders is at its greatest in the capital city of Jerusalem. But here on the road, some people in the crowd are challenging Jesus. They're hostile to him. And so it provokes Jesus to... um, make some very bold and decisive statements verse 23 whoever is not with me is against me and whoever does not gather with me scatters in other words there's no neutrality this is the point of division you're either with me formally or if you're in any other position if you're not actually with me What, you know, you can't say you're neutral, you're actually uh, against me. This is a very fundamental reality of the kingdom of God, of course. Many people like to position themselves as if to say, well, I'm very sympathetic with the church, I'm very sympathetic with Jesus, I'm very sympathetic with his moral teaching, uh, with this kingdom of God idea. But they are not with Jesus in terms of believing in him wholeheartedly and committing their lives to him and Jesus said if you're in that position you're actually uh, against me whoever is not with me is against me so the crowd have to choose they listen to this conversation are they going to follow the accusers from the crowd saying he's a false messiah operating by demonic power or are they going to follow Jesus or are they going to sit on the fence if they're sitting on the fence they're not with Jesus there is No neutrality. Jesus then goes on to give this little metaphor of the house being cleaned, which I read. I'm sure you remember just a few moments ago. And talking about the departure of an evil spirit um, in the metaphor of driving it out of a house. So the house could represent an individual person, such as, for example, the very man who's been healed which is obviously what is in view here. But he says the evil spirit, the impure spirit, has a malicious intention to return to that house or that person or that place and it'll try and bring seven worse evil spirits with it and and make an even greater impact. And so the house has to be filled with something else. Now, when Matthew tells the story in Matthew 12, uh, we find that he applies this to not just individuals, but to that generation of Jews in Israel, of Judaism, basically saying the whole nation is a bit like a house. You know, I've come, I've cleared the house of darkness, spiritual darkness. I've made it. Uh, a wonderful place, Uh, you need to fill the house with faith in my kingdom. If you don't fill it with faith in my kingdom, and it's, it's a vacuum, as it were, or empty, then that darkness is going to come back, but it's going to be even greater darkness, and it's going to lead to judgment. Now, this could apply to an individual, as is implied here initially in Luke, or it could apply to the whole Jewish nation, as is stated specifically in the parallel account, the earlier discussion of the same theme in Matthew 12. So it's quite a sobering message, isn't it? And again, it points out something which we often see in the Gospels. Experiencing the miraculous power of Jesus is not all it takes to be saved to be born again to become part of his kingdom you can experience his power you could even be healed by him the very power of God can flood through your body and still you don't respond wholeheartedly and this is the issue that Jesus is identifying here and warning his uh, listeners that when he performs miracles and when he teaches them he's looking for a wholehearted response this is the moment of decision it's like the whole nation of israel is in the valley of decision so to speak are they going to follow him or not and the opposition from the sanhedrin and the ruling authorities is so strong that it will influence many people not to follow jesus just like those people in the crowd who spoke up uh, and quoted the pharisee statement again sometime after it had originally been stated but to the contrary some people really did believe and the woman who called out from the crowd is an expression of that humble simple trust that Jesus is telling the truth and that desire to follow him she calls a blessing on him and on his mother the one who brought him uh, into this world and nursed him and looked after him as a child but Jesus turns that statement and said the real blessing is going to come to those who both hear the word of God and obey it notice the two things together there they're all hearing the word of God the whole crowd as Jesus is walking along the road they're all hearing him telling the truth about the kingdom of God but who's obeying it the one who follows through with wholehearted obedience and faith is the one who ultimately receives the blessing let's move on to the next section verses 29 to 32 again uh, saying something uh, very similar to what we see recorded in Matthew 12 as the crowds increased Jesus said this is a wicked generation it asks for a sign but none will be given it except the sign of Jonah for as Jonah was assigned to the Ninevites so also will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise at the judgment with the people of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom. And now something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah and now something greater than Jonah is is here. Jesus saw something very prophetic and powerful in that remarkable story of Jonah which of course uh, as many of you Will know is one of the prophetic books of the Old Testament. It's a very short prophetic book. It's an easy one to read and to understand because, unlike many prophetic books, it's primarily telling a story and a very exciting story about a prophet, Jonah, from the northern part of the country known at that time as Israel, when the country was divided into two kingdoms in some previous period. And he was called uh, to go to The imperial capital of a a nation called Assyria, which was the world power at the time, threatening to destroy the nation of Israel. In fact, sending military raiding parties in, uh, forcing uh, them to pay money, protection money. Uh, It was a very difficult time for the nation of Israel. The Assyrians were their public enemy number one. And yet Jonah was called to go right into their capital and preach something that he found incredible, impossible, absolutely terrified him. And he fled in the opposite direction, he got on a boat and he went west into the Mediterranean rather than going northeast to Nineveh the capital of Assyria. But in the story, and this is really the bit that Jesus focuses on, there is the remarkable incident that where he's on the boat and there's a storm on the boat and to cut a long story short the sailors throw Jonah overboard thinking that he somehow or other has caused the wrath of God And he is swallowed by a great fish. We don't exactly know what the fish is and miraculously survives for three days and three nights until uh, the fish spews him up on the shore of Israel and then off he goes to Nineveh. So that's just a quick recapitulation of that story. There's much more to it than that. You can read the story in the book of Jonah. But Jesus describes that event of going from life into the sea apparently dead by all accounts no one could possibly believe that Jonah could have survived and then back to life again when uh, the fish spewed him out and uh, miraculously he recovered and carried on his life. That three days and three nights of uh, life followed by uh, a period of what appeared to be death And then coming back to life again, that Jesus takes as a symbol, a sign, uh, very similar to the three days and three nights that will be the sum total of his death, uh, his burial, uh, and then his resurrection, which took place on parts of three days, part of Friday, all of Saturday, part of Sunday and in Jewish thinking a part of a day is a whole day hence the expression three days and three nights so he's basically saying the only sign the only message now for this generation that will uh, fulfill their desire for something incredibly miraculous that, that sort of shows the power of God is actually going to be his death and resurrection even his miracles Um, haven't convinced them Uh, great though they were and so he said uh, you know there's just one sign left to happen the sign of Jonah which is the death and resurrection which of course uh, was a message to the whole nation he says here that the Gentiles um, you know they responded the Assyrians responded and he then mentions uh, a lady called the queen of the south or the queen of Sheba who came to visit King Solomon hundreds of years before from a southern nation, maybe in Africa, maybe in Arabia, and uh, was amazed at uh, his faith and his wealth and the temple and the religion and responded wholeheartedly to it. And so Jesus is saying, you know, the Gentiles, the, the non-Jewish people, often respond better the jewish people who've got more revelation more history more understanding they've got the old testament scriptures but still they stumble at the messiah the nature of jesus his mission and the circumstances of his life death and resurrection this passage concludes uh, from verse 33 to 36 no one lights a lamp and puts it in a place where it will be hidden or under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand so that those who come in may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eyes are healthy, your whole body is also full of light. But when they're unhealthy, your body also is full of darkness. See to it then that the light within you is not darkness. Therefore, if your whole body is full of light... And no part of it is dark, it will be just as full of light as when a lamp shines its light on you. Just as a lamp lights up a house or a room, so the human eye, if healthy, metaphorically speaking, illuminates the whole body. Light comes in through your eyes and brings messages and information to your whole body which, if you're blind, uh, does not take place through your eyes. If you cannot see, your body suffers. And the metaphor is about the ability to see or understand the coming of the Kingdom of God. If you do not see the Kingdom of God uh, with your spiritual eyes, then you are in spiritual darkness. Well this passage has been very challenging and although we've gone over similar material from the earlier account in Matthew and Mark, um, I think it's really well worth thinking through the implications. Here's some final reflections as we bring this episode to a close. Jesus often repeated key teachings as I've said and one of the reasons for that was for emphasis. The message here is very important. And the message for the Jewish nation was the impending judgment if they did not, as a nation in general, receive the Messiah. It's a warning to the people of that time. And we know from history, as I've mentioned in many earlier episodes, that in AD 70 the Romans uh, brought a huge destruction and defeat upon the whole Jewish nation, and destroyed their capital city, Jerusalem, and their temple. A massive act of divine judgment came about at the hands of the Roman army. Now, casting out demonic forces from individuals, bringing spiritual light where there's darkness, is a sign of the coming kingdom. Because as the kingdom comes, there is a confrontation sometimes between good and evil within The hearts of individuals and those battles have to be won. So I'd encourage you to pursue this kingdom wholeheartedly and take note of Jesus' warning that um, whoever is not with me is against me. There isn't any neutrality in the kingdom of God. And in conclusion, being without Christ is like living in a house with no lights at night. And some of you know what that is terrible sense of spiritual darkness feels like and some of you will feel the significance of some of the things that jesus says here well i've got a great bit of good news for you you can come out of that darkness into the light by faith by believing trusting in jesus turning away from your independence the things you've done wrong saying to god that you want to live a new life and coming to him And he'll receive you and forgive you and you'll come into that kingdom of light. This is a powerful passage and it speaks to every generation, not just to the first generation who received it. So let's receive its teaching and let's be encouraged by the overwhelming power and victory of God's kingdom uh, in overcoming all evil powers of darkness. Thanks for listening. You have been listening to Martin Charlesworth for Word Online. To find out more, visit wordonline.org.